What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In Season 2, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now, your host, award-winning architect-turned-entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Kader. I'm the CEO of Redist, a technology company focused on innovative public financing for real estate projects. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now, let's build something. Today, our guest is Arthi Krishnamurthy. Arthi is a partner at the renowned architectural design firm, Deborah Burke Partners in New York City. There, she has led some of the firm's most complex projects and has built a focus on work for mission-driven organizations. And that work includes work for universities, cultural institutions, and nonprofits. And all of that, she connects the design thinking to their missions. Through this work, she has developed an expertise in helping groups forge common purpose and in leading them to discoveries that can shape their own evolutions. Arthi is a graduate of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and the University of Pennsylvania. We will be talking about the two new residential colleges that her team has designed at Princeton University. More broadly, we will discuss strategies to make university buildings homes for students that are coming from both near and far. Thank you so much for being here with us, Arthi. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. So let's dig in. So you grew up in Singapore, going from Southeast Asia to the cornfields of Urbana-Champaign. I've actually never been to Urbana-Champaign, so I'm imagining there are cornfields to, to West Philadelphia. Awesome. There are some cornfields. Good. Okay. So I want to hear all about that, that trans- transition that you made as a student through all of these places. Well, it was a real transition going from Singapore to Illinois. And to start with, there was the weather shock. I'd never seen snow before that. And I'm a bit shy to say that I went out in the snow and opened to sandals more than once before my very sweet roommates had to <laughs> they had like an intervention. Yeah, they had an intervention, which was fair. <laughs> Definitely fair and kind. And then there was the culture shock too, of course. People would say, hi, how are you? And I would sincerely give my answer in long form and, you know, to tell them how I was doing. And I thought to myself, oh, this is very time consuming. Mm-hmm. And it took me a bit to realize that it was just a greeting and that they only expected a summary response. But all jokes aside, I am so very glad that Illinois was my first stop in the United States. As opposed to, like, say, New York City. 
Yeah, it, it's a big school, and I think I saw a cross section of the middle of America, mm-hmm. and I found the people there very humane, very kind, and in an authentic way. Mm-hmm. And it was a great first experience of the United States. And my education there was also it set a very important foundation. So from there, I went to Philadelphia to the mm-hmm. University of Pennsylvania, and. I was attracted to their architecture program in itself, but also very attracted to its adjacency to an incredible landscape program mm. and an incredible historic preservation program. And I'm still interested in that connection between mm. architecture, landscape, historic preservation, and how architecture buildings should very much relate to their settings. That's their landscape, their cultural context, their historic mm. context. I think that one thing I'll, I'll mention is earlier this season, we had architects Angelia Solomonov and Camila Krasut on the show. So Angelia is from Argentina and Camila is from Venezuela. And both of them had remarked that when they came as designers to the United States, they were just frankly surprised at how separated and distinct design practice and design, I guess the vocation of design mm-hmm. is in the United States where there's landscape architects. There's product designers, there are architectural designers, and never the twain shall meet. <laughs> so I think it's yeah. particularly interesting to hear that from those that have had experiences abroad and now are coming to the United States. Now, I mean, you think about the Eames, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, they transitioned between furniture design and architecture and product design. And there was a fluidity and just a dedication to design. Mm-hmm. And I think that the siloing is not always beneficial. And so, again, you know, my interest was actually watching all the other students to see what they were doing, watching the other faculty members to see what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And I appreciated the ability to do that. So you then have had the opportunity to work at two spectacular firms. So before joining Deborah Burke Partners, you were at Pelly Clark Pelly. And you've worked with its renowned leaders, both uh, Cesar Pelly and now Raphael Pelly. Um, who was a guest earlier this season on the podcast. And then, of course, you work with Deborah Burke at your current firm. How would you compare these different experiences that you've had? So that's an interesting question. I admire all three of them, though over the last decade plus, working with Deborah, I've grown to embody and really extend her ethos. But let me start at the start. Mm-hmm. I joined Cesar Kelly and Associates in 2003. And when you joined the firm, you were given a copy of Caesar's book, Observations for Young Architects. Which is an excellent book. It's a very good book. And in it, Caesar describes eight principal connections that drive architecture, including time, place, and purpose. Mm-hmm. Time and place translates to context, which both Caesar and Raphael would say should drive design. Deborah's ethos is similarly grounded. She, too, believes that architecture should not be signature, mm-hmm. should not be driven by the creator's ego or be singularly stylistic. That instead, it should be so inspired by, so rooted in its surroundings that a building should be designed in a way that it can be nowhere else but where it is. Mm-hmm. That it is born of its site, it's born of its context, its people, and its purpose. And that's not to say that Architecture should be invisible or just blend in. 
Mm-hmm. Sometimes architecture might need to assert itself. But whether a building speaks loudly or less so, it should make a place even more of itself. Mm-hmm. And Deborah describes the antithesis of this in a pretty funny way. She describes a building that could be designed to be anywhere, a placeless building or a generic building. She describes it as spatula architecture. You slip the <laughs> spatula and there's under it. You can pick it up and move it elsewhere, which is something I think is, is quite funny to think about. That's actually uh, hilarious. Uh, have you had a chance to go to the Cleveland Rock and Roll Hall of Fame before? No. So it's a beautiful lakefront uh, project right in Cleveland. And there's something so odd about it. I mean, obviously, it's odd because it's an IMP project in the shape of it. All of it doesn't quite look like a quote unquote building. But I mean, I think it's actually beautiful. But it's the fact that you park behind the building where the views are the most beautiful. And then you make a 180 around to come to the front side. And this very kind of lonely, windswept uh, plaza. And it just made me feel like something was off, like this wasn't done right. And then in talking mm-hmm. to Vishan Chakrabarti, so he was on earlier this season, uh, made this really awesome conversation over two parts about his firm's winning proposal to do a, a major renovation and extension to the mm-hmm. project. He said when they were going through the design archives, they found out that the actual location wasn't the one that IMPay understood it to be. So he actually designed this project for a completely different site. And when I believe the acquisition process didn't work out the way that it was meant to for the organization that was sponsoring it, that they literally just took IMPay's design and just put it in the new location that they were able to get for the project. And that's why it's it's literally spatula architecture. And that's the consequence of it. That's bachelor architecture, for sure. You know, you, what you see then is very curious relationships to its mm-hmm. surrounding. And, you know, I think that's one example. And at least it has specificity and interest, right? Mm-hmm. But the the worst offenders, I'd say, are the buildings that literally are devoid of character, mm-hmm. that are so generic that they don't relate at all to the place and they don't make the place better either. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something we all ought to be very careful about. What I think of is that there, in, in many parts of American life, I think it's convenient to imagine that there are these clear divisions and these ideas of good and bad, winner and loser, mm-hmm. who's responsible and who's irresponsible, these types of storylines. And I think that for a large part of my career, I imagine that designers did one thing and developers did another. And there's this like a uh, cosmic battle between the two. And what I've really uncovered over the course of these many amazing conversations is the best designers are the ones that think about the variables and the sensitivities that mean a lot to the developers and or the property owners or clients. And the, the best clients are the ones that understand the sensibilities and the realities of what a designer considers the most important issues on behalf of the people that will be using the building. And I think that trope of, ah, oh, like these two like battling entities, it's not really true. Those are actually the worst designers that and the worst developers. Yeah, that's it's not at all true. You know, I read a reference to developers once and... Maybe this is an overstatement you'll tell me, but 
you know, calling them visionaries, you know, the people who begin with the first vision of something mm-hmm. that's possible. And you know, there is a lot of architectural critique and some of it is, a lot of it is very intellectually interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's good to think about architecture buildings in this kind of intellectual framework. But the ultimate goal, I would say, is for people to come into a building and say, gee, I love it. You yeah. know, that's, that's the ultimate goal is, gee, I love it not because it has pink stone or blue mm-hmm. stone or, you know, it has a great color of paint. But gee, I love it because it somehow is resonant for me. Yes. And I think that's that's the game and that's the the way that one should view whether or not building is successful or not. And I think there's something as the user of a building, as the the observer of it, there's something so utterly exhausting about the the process of thinking that what visionary means is that it is this lone wolf architect that comes up with this great idea and this is what is given on like a a platter as a piece of gold to the city and its residents when in reality i think what visionary actually means is being very observant i think it means being very understanding and it's being able to bring together often very competing priorities in something that very elegantly, subtly brings something new and valuable to those that need to use it. And that is a lot harder than just birthing something from your mind and foisting it on a city, which I think is too often what we celebrate in our industry. Yeah, I think that's very well said. Architecture, building, real estate is a hugely collaborative act. Mm-hmm. There is no lone wolf in this. It takes many, many, many intelligent, talented, committed people to make a built environment. And that collaboration in itself takes work. Mm-hmm. Collaboration includes making room for people to voice their voice. It includes very empathetic listening, which you described. All of that takes time, takes effort, and it is actually, as you say, more difficult to do than just a signature. Mm -hmm. And I do think that the product of that collaboration, that collective act, is more successful than the product of a single signature. Mm -hmm. And I think all the people that, that you mentioned, from Cesar to Raphael to Deborah, are very good at that, which is observing, Mm -hmm. understanding, and producing something that is uh, transformative. So I want to understand, let's let's dial it all the way back to Singapore. Who else played a process in your growth as a designer? So I think probably many people would say that their parents have influenced Mm -hmm. them. So I apologize if I'm being a bit predictable here. My father is an architect as well. Mm -hmm. He practiced in Singapore in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. when there was a huge period of growth there. That was the beginning of this, the state of Singapore at that point, right? Yeah, yeah. It was, they were literally building this developing nation. And so he made buildings for that developing nation and for the public good. At a personal level, he designed the house I grew up in. Ah, and I that see. house has left a huge impression on me. 
Singapore is tropical. It's smack on the equator. It is lush. It is verdant. It's so lush that if you leave anything still for any period of time, something will grow on it. <laughs> and he designed a house that worked with the climate, not against it. Mm-hmm. It had interior courtyards, verandas that encouraged natural ventilation. It used light air and moisture in an almost painterly way. And it left you more aware of the beauty and the meaning of your surroundings, mm-hmm. of nature, and of the passing of time. And this way of thinking is very ingrained in me. And in our practice today, we think a lot about how we can create spaces that strengthen your connection to nature, to landscape, and to yourself. I think there's a tying thread to everyone that is part of the Desi diaspora. So <laughs> my family, we're Indian origin as well, uh, but come from a different cultural, mm-hmm. et cetera, background. What I find so fascinating is this idea of making something great from the resources that you have. That is such a diaspora, Desi diaspora quality. And the idea of being able to learn and master things quickly, I think is also a really common element across the diaspora. So one funny example, like so my mom, for example, is a chemist. She's not an architect like your dad, but over the course of renovating their home in the Princeton area, not far from Michael Graves' home, over this past year, she has gone from someone that was relatively new to the ideas of design. So from the design process, the construction process, I was responsible for that. But by the time that the furnishing process came, my mom was like, no, I, I got this. I think I figured this out because she had observed what I was doing and how I was looking at things and, and the, the things I was suggesting in terms of brands and places to go, the things are beautiful and have value. And she's actually picking artwork on her own and she's picking furniture on which actually looks beautiful. And when her Indian auntie yeah. moms and grandmas come, they hang out for that expression called kitty parties. Well, I mean, socially distanced uh-huh. kitty parties, but they come over, they're like, oh my God, this is so beautiful. You're so lucky to have your son. And she's like, no, I did this. <laughs> I, I thought you'd appreciate that. <laughs> I do. I will say it does feel somewhat stressful to, to think about being the one to design a house for your parents, who I'm sure are demanding and, you know, <laughs> the bar is high there. <laughs> but, you know, to be honest, that's how, for example, uh, Richard Meyer got started in his career. It was his parents' yeah, home right. in New Jersey. Although I, I would make sure to say there is probably very little that Richard Meyer and I have in common <laughs> as architects, but I think that <laughs> remains the same. So you have now had the opportunity to do design projects all across the country before uh, this project here in Princeton that we're going to be focusing on. So which of these projects stand out the most for you and what have you taken away from them? So we do do work all over the country. We've designed a series of hotels called the 21C Museum Hotels in cities such as Durham, Oklahoma City, Nashville, Cincinnati. And most of them are adaptive reuse projects, reimagining all buildings to be, in this case, a hospitality destination Mm -hmm. that combines the display of 21st century art, much of which is by living artists, Mm -hmm. a boutique hotel experience, and a restaurant focused on local cuisine. In fact, more than half our practice is involved in the transformation of all buildings for new uses in adaptive reuse. And from that work, we've learned to develop a very authentic language 
that is specific to the existing building and to its place. Again, heightening one's experience and understanding of the place. This authentic placemaking is something that comes out of our adaptive reuse work, but we use that way of thinking in our new construction projects as well, in all our projects. And I'll refer to some of this as we talk about Princeton. Excellent. So digging into the new residential colleges, as I mentioned, my parents don't live very far away and we actually record very close to the university as well, record this podcast at the Michael Graves. Um, So I can gush at how epically beautiful the town is and the university is, but rather than hear from me, I want to hear from you and let our listeners understand what is so particularly unique and special about the, the place and the, the site that you have had the opportunity to design it? It is a beautiful campus. It's stunning, in fact. Mm-hmm. Its garden setting is so beautiful that it's described as an arboretum. Our site has on one of its sides an area of woodland, and this is special. There aren't very many wooded places left on campus. It's also just south of one of the main recreation fields on campus called Pole Field. But to understand this particular site in context, let me explain that the new residential colleges are the first step in the university's 10-year campus plan, which includes expanding across Lake Carnegie. So today, the site sits on the edge of campus, but as the campus grows southward, its situation will become much more in the heart of campus. And so we tried to anticipate how students and faculty move through the campus today and tomorrow, how they might traverse the site, how it can really become part of that connective tissue of the campus. And that's the idea of this long-term trajectory, not just building for today, but literally in the case of an institution like university, building for generations to come. That's right. I mean, these buildings will be there for a long period of time. I sure hope so. Yeah. (laughs) And it becomes part of the campus fabric. Mm. So making decisions need to be both deliberate and very Mm forward-looking. And I think we've done a good job of analyzing the languages of movement, for instance, on the existing campus and being sure to, in some cases, continue them, in some mm-hmm. cases, improve them, and be really forward-thinking on what it can be. Mm-hmm. So I think for listeners to understand how particularly unique designing a residential college at Princeton is, despite, I mean, in addition to the, the locational aspects that you described, it's very important to understand the residential college system at Princeton, as well as the eating clubs. Could you understand, explain rather, what that system is for undergraduates and also compare what that system is for graduates? I will say that because of my experience with this project, I'm more familiar with undergraduate life. So Mm -hmm. let me speak to that. The residential college system is meant to provide students with a community they feel they belong to and a sense of identity associated with that community. So you might meet a proud Princetonian And the first thing they might say is, I went to Princeton. And the second thing they might say is, I went to Forbes College, which is Mm -hmm. one of the current residential colleges. And what that does is it values community and it values a sense of belonging to that community. 
The residential colleges that we are designing are actually four-year colleges, and meaning that they will house students from first year all the way to fourth year. Many of the residential colleges currently are two years, mm-hmm. and then there is an upper-class tradition to join eating clubs. Eating clubs are not quite akin to fraternities. Eating clubs are instead more of a combination of dining halls and social halls, social Mm -hmm. clubs. But you have to get through a selection process to be part of them. So this is, as a sophomore, you go through the selection process to be part of them as a third year or fourth year student. And that selection process, which is called Bicker, is, of course, in the term selection itself, an exclusive process. Some of you will get in, some of you won't get in. Mm -hmm. And there is then also built in a feeling of some can be there, some can't be there, you may not get the one that you choose. And... Princeton is aware of this, and it's part of the reason why these residential colleges are offering a four-year option. It's so that optionality is provided, and Mm -hmm. I think choice is something that is very important to students and is very important to all people. Choice in, you know, what is your community, what is your dining experience, Mm -hmm. and it shouldn't be assumed that one size fits all. And so in our residential colleges, we will have accommodations for third and fourth year students. And in fact, we have to think a little bit about how do you compete with the evening clubs? How do you make sure that third and fourth year students want to live in these residential colleges? So it's not like the sad alternate version. No, exactly. It shouldn't be the sad alternate version. And so we thought a lot about And we call this giving them a capstone experience. What is a capstone experience for third year and fourth year students? And in designing the residence halls, we put rooms for third and fourth year students, often singles, in a way that they were arranged in a group with an open space, a social space between them so that they could be a virtual suite, giving them, you know, the, the combination of privacy and community that they might see. We also put them at the ends of each of these buildings where they might have something that is specific and interesting that the architecture can offer. And that could be special windows or that could be great view. You know, if you think about a great living experience you might have had in an old building, it may have been, all right, me and my three juniors roommates are in this attic space in an old building and boy was that a cool space and Mm -hmm. that's a capstone experience so we try to recreate that kind of specificness specialness in these rooms at the ends of the bars so that we can offer an experience that is special and does attract the third year and fourth year students as i said the eating clubs are part dining hall part social club Mm -hmm. And so in providing dining alternatives, we also have associated with the third year and fourth year experiences kitchens so that they can do some of their own cooking. Mm -hmm. And on campus, this will be another option. There are co-ops, for instance, that students are part of, that they can make their meals in together and find a sense of community. So now this is another option in a constellation of options 
giving third and fourth year students choice in the community that they want to be part of. Mm, okay. And then in the context of that, because you'd mentioned that uh, the client, the university was aware of some of the challenges uh, that come with the upper class system that you mentioned, the eating clubs. What was the specific project brief that the university gave you at the outset? And then how did you go about preparing the, the design response? So Princeton is, I've found them to be very thoughtful and sophisticated in thinking about residential life. And they gave us a very nice brief. They came to us with a value proposition, well-set, well-developed set of fundamental objectives that they mm-hmm. want to achieve. They wanted the residential colleges to enhance student well-being, to integrate living and learning, and to foster a sense of community and responsibility. We then start our process, and we always start our process with careful listening. And we listen to the experience and ambitions of students and administrators, and we made out with some unexpected discoveries along the way. We then go into a process that translates this into architecture. And so we design the buildings to integrate the inside and the outside, connecting the colleges to the site and the landscape. And our design sought to build community around hallways. We Mm -hmm. realized quite early on that hallways, corridors, are in fact in res life a real asset. We designed a way that the doors in the residence rooms could be held open by students if they desired and took a very simple tact. We put doors across from doors. Mm -hmm. So one set of roommates could have an open door to the hallway, open to another door, which might be open to another set of roommates. And so you can kind of imagine a cacophony of yelling across the hallway, (laughs) of sharing music across the hallway. And that is the first building block of community. And so Mm. we thought about halls, hallways, as an asset an opportunity and the first of concentric rings of community that you can build, starting there and moving outwards. We also design spaces to be visible, to be interconnected, to have views out to the campus so that you build in an awareness of each other, mm-hmm. a sense of place in your surrounds, in your community, and in your region and beyond, to instill a sense of responsibility, the responsibility we all have to each other, to give visibility to each other so you have that feeling of responsibility. Mm, okay. So we've talked about the, the building blocks of this amazing project and understand it's two buildings. So tell us a little bit more about the numbers that are associated with this number of beds, the square footage, so our listeners get, are starting to get a vision of what the, the large scale of this project. Yeah, it's actually eight buildings, but let me explain So it's two residential colleges Mm -hmm. on 12 acres. And each college will house 500 students, so 1,000 in total. They each have their own dining hall, but with a shared server and kitchen. And the project in total is about 500,000 square feet. There is a 20-foot grade change from the top of the site to the bottom of the site. And... In that, we saw a real sectional opportunity. We designed a continuous base 
that would hold a lot of the college programs. College programs are things that are more university public facing, things like common rooms, college offices, the dining rooms. They all sit within this base level. And on top of that base sits eight residence halls. And each of these residence halls have individual floors that hold about 20 or so students. And in each of the residence floors, there's also a living room space. That's really key because that is the living room for that community. And that essentially becomes the the tying thread for all of the buildings themselves that essentially are at the same level. And it, it's snow is, for example, in New Jersey now more occasionally than previously before. But is that also an opportunity for people to travel between the, both buildings without having to necessarily put on heavy coats and boots? Yep, that's exactly right. We learned this from the students during that listening period, mm-hmm. that it was not really convenient, not really conducive to building friendships, to hanging out with each other. And we did learn during programming, during listening, that students have different modes of studying, including, you know, this singular concentrated study. You might do this in a room, you might do this in a library, you might do this, honestly, in a dining hall where there is background noise, if that suits you. But there's also a different mode of studying called social study. Mm -hmm. And so... To acknowledge that there are different ways of studying and that there is a need to socialize, we did build an interior and continuous path mm. through this podium. And this podium is an opportunity for that. So that a student does not need to put on their coat and their boots to get from one part of the building to the other part of the building to go see a friend group, whether to study or just to hang out. Mm-hmm. And this was something that was important to the students and the podium allowed us to. So the core of Princeton's campus is in a collegiate Gothic style, similar to UPenn, Yale, and for example, Duke University, many others that use that particular style, uh, which is incredibly iconic. There are a next generation of buildings at Princeton that integrate a wide set of different architectural styles and material palettes. Um, could you talk to us about what you see as the, the visible materials that someone would be looking at, feeling, or touching as they're walking through these new buildings? So we designed these buildings, I'll start by saying we designed these buildings to be contemporary. Mm-hmm. And Princeton was founded in 1764. It has a real historic and intellectual underpinning that gives the institution place, depth, and context. And we saw an opportunity here to consider how a place that was built for people 200, 300 years ago could also be built for you today. Mm -hmm. How do you demonstrate, how do you evidence change, and how do you speak to relate to this contemporary generation of students? And so deliberately, these buildings are designed in a contemporary style rather than mimicking the old. The other thing you'll see as you approach these buildings is a transparent base. And, you know, this may not seem revolutionary on its own, but many of the historic buildings on campus do take stone all the way down to the ground. Like a fortress. They take the facades all the way down. (laughs) 
you can't see in. And if you mm-hmm. can't see in, you can't know what's happening inside to know that you want to go participate, to be mm-hmm. part of that. And so as you approach these buildings, what you see is a transparent base with visibility in, let's say, at the first college into a common room. And you can decide, I want to join this friend group or not. And, or you can decide, I want to go in there and sit near them, but not participate, which is also something that students say that they wanted the opportunity to do. To not always jump in, but be able to observe before you jump in. Mm-hmm. The buildings themselves are designed with a warm brick. And that warm brick takes the tones and the warmth of the shifts that you see on the historic buildings. So when you view the buildings, and now you can, most of the brick is up, when you view the buildings from, let's say, the other side of Poe Field, and you can see it in context with the historic buildings, you do see between the use of a material that is very sympathetic to the historic fabric and also a roof line that we designed that is picturesque, that varies against the sky, just as the historic buildings do. Between the two, you see a very sympathetic language, even though one is contemporary and some are historic. I am going to take a break here to let our listeners know that we'll be having real estate developer and investor Nick Falker on the show next month. He is the managing partner of Cambridge Realty Partners, and despite its name, the firm is based in New Haven, Connecticut, and we'll be continuing our tour of amazing dormitories across the Northeast by focusing on the new uh, residential building that he's uh, developing for Yale University students. Be sure to head to American Building Podcast and subscribe to the pod on whichever platform you prefer so you don't miss any of the great conversations that we're having this season. Developers like Nick often have a challenge capitalizing their real estate projects and Redist is a new technology company that unlocks public financing for commercial real estate. Check it out for yourself at redist.us. That's R-E-D-I-S-T dot U-S. So, A key feature of the plan uh, that you described, the 10-year plan, is the growth of the student body at Princeton. Talk to us more about who goes to Princeton now and who will be going in the future. Right. So the impetus for this project to build two new residential colleges from Princeton's side was to support Princeton's expansion of their undergraduate population, which they are going to increase the diversity of their student body, broadening access to the education that they offer. From this institutional objective, we took our charge to be, how do you design residential colleges to welcome and accommodate the experience of all students? Mm -hmm. To design it in a way that you never leave a student saying or feeling, I'm here, but this is somebody else's Princeton. But instead that this place says that it was designed for for me too, that Mm -hmm. it's my Princeton as well. I think you and I and perhaps many of the listeners ought to have had experiences where you don't feel welcome, where you Mm -hmm. feel like an outsider, you don't feel like you belong. So to me and to our firm, this was very important, you know, to think through this and really try to deliver on it. I think what you're describing is very 
emotionally resonant for me in particular, because what you're describing was exactly my own experience. Uh, when I arrived at Princeton's campus for admit weekend, that's the weekend that after they've given admissions offers for those that are choosing, considering to come, one of the first feelings that I had was looking at the, the minivan that my family came in to the university with uh, compared to the, the stunningly beautiful foreign cars that were parked in the parking lot. And I mean, just looking at the way I looked, the way I dressed, et cetera, it just felt so out of sync with everything that was there. And I think it wasn't particularly anything that anyone had said or anything that was expressed that made me feel that way. But I think particularly the things that you are describing in terms of the very subtle strategies of how buildings can evoke a sense of place for everybody is so powerful because I think that can prevent perhaps a next generation of students from psyching themselves out of going to a place yeah. as wonderful and transformational as Princeton. And I think it takes a truly special architect to understand that there are many ways of saying things. And oftentimes it's not the words that are important. It's the physical objects that can count for That's a lot right. as well. Princeton is undertaking a number of initiatives to think about this same problem. And that goes in the built environment, I will say too. You know, that goes from everything from thinking about wayfinding. Do you need to arrive at a campus and feel lost? Or can you have good wayfinding so you feel a sense of autonomy and you feel that you, you can belong to this campus in short order rather than having to learn it over the course of a year? But in terms of architecture, I know architecture can only do so much. But as much as architecture can present signals and cues for exclusion, it can send signals and cues for welcome. And so doing what we can and with architecture, nudging perceptions, nudging behavior, it's all worth doing. Mm -hmm. So I think tied to that, mental health is particularly a challenge for students during the pandemic. And we've seen that talked about in the news uh, very frequently over the past two years. Could you talk about some of the issues that are related to that, particularly for international students for whom um, the, this might be their first experience in the United States, experiencing tons of change, how the design of a building can help accommodate and make some of those transitions uh, easier for folks. And I think we, we talked a little bit about that earlier in terms of the, the layouts of rooms, but are there other things that you consider beyond that as well? Very early on, we thought a lot about loneliness. Loneliness is, is something... Again, I fully understand that architecture cannot solve on its own. Mm -hmm. But we did choreograph the way students will make their way to their rooms, to follow a path that would take them past other students, to give them the opportunity to join a friend group or similarly make the choice not to if they don't feel like it, but that the opportunity to socialize is offered to them. You know, we designed that interior network of ways to get from one place to the other without putting your shoes and boots on, for instance. That's all part of that. It's an offer. It's a social offer. You have the opportunity to go be with other people. And we created various scales of spaces for groups to gather, but we also created spaces for solitude and respite. And I think this is important. To acknowledge that you need sometimes alone time Mm -hmm. and time for reflection or time to withdraw. Students work very hard 
and it can get super stressful and having a quiet place to take a breather is also key. And the last thing we did, I would say, is to create moments where they could see and experience the beauty of nature, to help them snap out of their day-to-day, to give them a sense that they are part of something bigger, mm-hmm. to give them maybe a moment of joy, a sense of perspective, I hope, and I think that's healthy too. So the experience of designing a project involves many different types of designers. And we, we talked a little bit about that earlier, about how oftentimes in the design process in the United States, those experiences are really uh, siloed. But there was a number of other firms that you worked with on this project that added additional layers to the design, such as artwork. Uh, could you talk about those other folks that are part of this design process and how their work and their selections played a part in the larger whole? Yeah. We work, as I mentioned, with many talented, talented people. One in particular I'd like to highlight is the work of a creative called Stephen Doyle and his firm, Doyle Partners. Mm-hmm. They helped us, work with us, to come up with a series of interventions, things that will give the students that moment of pause, of connection, even maybe a moment of wonderment. For instance, for example, In 16 scattered locations, we will install a prism to a window in a hallway or a nook space. And at some point, if you're in one of these spaces during the day, the prism will cast a rainbow on the floor or maybe even on the book you're reading. And our hope is that this will make you smile. Maybe this will make you have a moment. And you may not come across one of these prisms on your first week. You may not come across it even in your first month. But you will discover it over time. And maybe you'll tell a fellow student. And, you know, something of this place that isn't widely known is known to you. And that sense of discovery, we think, can also see why. There's something that reminded me of is uh, Paul Lewis, who's a professor at Princeton, is uh, doing the design of a new dormitory at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. And he mentioned that the treatment of the, the brick facade in that particular case, they opted for very unique, very beautiful corbels at each of the windows, which are actually different location by location when you look across the facade of the building. And those serve to bring different qualities of light and shadow that shift during the day that allow for this idea of wonder and change, um, which is actually kind of, Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of cool to think about that because that means that as a designer, you are so observant and so willing to open your mind to think about what that experience is of someone, not just in a momentary sort of like a, a temporal way, but over the course of time, over the course of a semester and year, what could that, that experience be like? That's, Very symbolic, I think, of the type of work that you do and the type of work that your firm does. I would love to hear from you now that you have done a good amount of the design process for the Princeton Project, how you place this project in the larger portfolio of work that you've done at Deborah Burke, uh, both uh, previously and the projects that are perhaps coming down the pike, the the core ideas that you feel are a part of the strategy that you'll deploy in the future and tied to your past projects on dormitory projects, residential projects? So almost all our residential life projects really do center around community. So 
we think a lot about inviting students to engage with one another and we give visibility to social spaces, interconnectedness between spaces. And we design the spaces to be a little open-ended, to be what we call non-prescriptive, so that students can, you know, decide how they want to use the space, even maybe move the furniture around and feel that sense of agency so that they feel a sense of ownership over the space that then translates to belonging. We design spaces for people to come together and for solitude. And sometimes we think also about our interior design in a way to think about how it can relate to many people. Sometimes being deliberately eclectic or deliberately relating to a place in a very authentic way so that it's, again, not stylistic in one way in say a Western canon or a Lux canon, but that it is eclectic in a purposeful way, authentic in a purposeful way that it can relate to many, many people. And I think that's what is important to us in our future work. And that's what has always driven us is going back to designing buildings to relate and to resonate with people. So that maybe they say, gee, I love it. And they may not say it, you know, the minute they walk in, mm-hmm. but that they find something that resonates for them and they feel more connected to their place. That's a wonderful, wonderful ethos. And I think that's a terrific place for us to wrap up as well. So thank you so much for joining us today on the American Building Podcast, Arthi. Thank you, Atif. This was really fun. Absolutely. And listeners, if you want to hear the behind the scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built, subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Rate and review us on iTunes to help us reach a wider audience and follow us on Instagram at American Building Podcast. We all know real estate is a tough industry to make it. So how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? Hear from me, the team at Michael Graves and Readist, and many of our spectacular guests like Arthi on what we did to make it where we are. Grab our exclusive guide, Seven Tips on How to Stand Out in Your Field at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind. And we must reach out beyond the boundaries that we see and the boundaries that we create in order to help build homes and communities. Today, Arthi and I have made donations to Children of Promise, which provides support to children whose lives are impacted by mass incarceration. I encourage you, our listeners, to support their worthwhile work as well. My name is Optif Kader, and this has been American Building.